Hello, hello. Welcome back, my friends. Welcome back to the What If Project podcast. This is episode 258, and uh, today we're talking to Kendana Kay. She wrote a book called Kissing with Eyes Wide Open. My phone is dinging. Oh, look at that. It's a message from my daughter's school. Let's see what it is together. Let's see what it is. Oh, countdown to our annual tie-dye palooza. Yep, that's what they do at our at our school, my daughter's school. We have a, uh, every year they do a fundraiser where we go and we tie-dye t-shirts. And so it's going to be awesome. They have food trucks. They have ICs. They have uh, more food and more food after that. And they, <laughs> and they have... Obviously, we tie-dye shirts, so I'm all about tie-dye. If you see me on my on video, I usually have my tie-dye hoodie on a lot. I have tie-dye shirts. I'm a colorful, colorful guy. Anyway, so today we're talking to Kendana. Blah! What is going on? Kendana K, and she wrote a book called Kissing with Eyes Wide Open, and uh, the subtitle is <laughs> my mind is all over the place. What is going on? The subtitle, sorry, subtitle is How Ten Pregnancies, Religious Trauma and Gritty Faith Helped Create an Extraordinary Marriage. This is Kendana's uh, memoir, obviously. And in this book, she tackles all sorts of different topics. Um, figuring out your your life, <laughs> figuring out your relationship with God, right, as it evolves and it changes. Uh, she talks about broken dreams, right, plans that kind of go awry, uh, she talks about being a parent and raising kids and having a marriage and the loss of her spouse. Uh, there's so much stuff in this book, and uh, I highly recommend it. Like, I don't usually like memoirs, not usually like a big memoir guy. <laughs> memoir guy, <laughs> I'm not really big. She's usually very into those kind of things. But the way she wrote this book, the way she came at uh, her story was so so unique. Remember how uh, Alison Fabricius was on the show a while back? She kind of wrote her book, was kind of memoirish, and she kind of came at it with a really unique angle of actually positioning the book as like a play. Uh, Kandana does not do that here, but she still comes at her story in a very unique kind of way, so I really appreciated the book and came away with a lot of things to to think about. So uh, anyway, pick it up. I'll put the link in the show notes. Also in the show notes, uh, links to my books, Rethinking Everything and uh, Emerging from the Rubble, and uh, link to the uh, Patreon page if you want to support the show. I got to tell you, Patreon is a lot of fun. Uh, we It doesn't matter how much you give, $3 a month, $100 a month, whatever. Uh, everybody gets the same thing, which is entrance into a Discord uh, community where we chat it up throughout the course of the week. There are some weeks where it's pretty quiet. Other weeks, the other day, I opened up. I opened up Discord. There was like there had to be there was like five hundred messages. People were just like talking about all this, all this stuff, and it was really cool to see. But it's fun because people, people live around the world. I mean, we have one person who's in Malaysia. We have people in uh, Canada. We have somebody in Australia. Somebody in Honduras. People in the U.S. And these people are just hanging out on Discord and chatting and things like that. And it's just a lot of fun. Uh, we're doing a, a book club as well. Try to do that like once a quarter. I don't really know how to get the book club really, really going because I've tried book clubs in the past. And if you do like a weekly meeting and stuff like that, like people feel like it's too much for them. Uh, but if you do like one meeting, it doesn't really feel like it's enough. 
And then if you if you just like chat over the course, you know, of like a week on a chapter on like Discord, it's easy for, even for me to like forget to go in there and, and share stuff. I don't, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out. It's a work in progress, but we're having a good time anyway. We're doing we're doing a book right now. But the point is, is that when you become a Patreon supporter, uh, you do get the opportunity to be part of uh, groups like like that. So anyway, my friends, that's it. Uh, all that to say, episode 258 with Kandana K kissing with eyes wide open. Enjoy. Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we are joined by a brand new guest. Her name is Kandana Kay, and she wrote an amazing book called Kissing with Eyes Wide Open. And so Kandana, uh, welcome to the podcast. It's great to connect with you. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Looking forward to this conversation, Glenn. Thank you. So we're going to get into your book uh, in just a few moments. But before that, uh, maybe take a minute to introduce yourself to our listeners, especially for people who are new to you and your work and your book. Uh, who are you? What do you do? Tell us what we need to know. Oh, my. Well, I'm a mom. So I have nine kids. We've homeschooled since 1990 or so. So that's been my career is homeschooling. Mm. I didn't get benefits like a 401k, but I got a lot of other benefits along the way, a lot of learning. And so as my older kids began to graduate, uh, my husband and I started kind of digging into what else is there for me, because I've mm-hmm. always had a sense of leadership and a sense of being drawn to more, right? So we, I began a, a coaching business. So it's hard to describe what I actually do because so much what I do comes from who I be. Yeah. And then out of my being, I've learned wisdom, I've learned tactics, and I just start to impart those to other people. That led to content creation around a couple of different programs, one-on-one coaching. Right now, I'm working with couples. I'm still doing one-on-one coaching and the programs, but I'm also bringing on a VIP program to work with couples who really want an epic marriage. Mm. They're committed to marriage. It's hard, and they want to create an exceptional marriage. So I I spend a lot of my energy right now toward um, mentoring and coaching couples. Is that fulfilling work? I imagine that it's incredibly fulfilling. Wow. Incredibly. Do you work with people primarily prior to marriage, during marriage, when they have problems in their marriage? Like when do they typically come to you for? That's interesting. Uh, The people that I've worked with so far have been married for about five to 10 years, which is kind of where you hit the honeymoon's over. And now it's like, are we really going to be lifetime partners? Really? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just hit our uh, 11 year anniversary. So we're in that phase where we've been right. married for a long time. We've been together for a long time, too, because we dated for, I think, five years before we got married. Wow. So we've known each other for a long time. I think it's been like 20 years we've known each other. That's amazing. Yeah. So you can be best friends, but you can also get bored and you can also have those long standing differences that just don't go away. Yeah. And I help with that. Sure. And homeschooling. Have you, did you homeschool all, all nine of your kids? Yes, yes. I did. I graduated um, 
six, seven of them have graduated. And now I have a 17 year old who's hasn't graduated yet, but she's close. And then a 14 year old. Wow. So I still have a few more years to bring it in for a landing. Right. But you're almost there. You've piloted the ship pretty well. (laughs) Almost autopilot. Right. (laughs) All right. So your book, uh, your book is a memoir, right? But it's not, it's not just a memoir. It's your, your story that shines this spotlight uh, to borrow from the back cover, uh, it kind of helps the reader grapple with some big dilemmas regarding faith, church, marriage, spirituality, all different aspects of life. So I was wondering if you could just take us into it a little bit, uh, to your memoir, your story, maybe wade us into these waters, uh, talk to us about where the story began, uh, obviously where you find yourself today and some of the highs and lows that brought you from A to B. <laughs> Wow, that's a huge question. Yes. Talk as long as you'd like. (laughs) I'll try to condense. um, Just to frame the book itself, Mm -hmm. I begin in college when Johnny and I met. So we do a little bit of backstory eventually, but we met, we were conservative Christians, very committed to a godly lifestyle. So deeply grappling with things like uh, headship and submission and Mm. what does that look like? Yeah. my personality, as I said earlier, like there's so much leadership in me. And that has been a love-hate relationship my entire life. Like mm. it's been, it was very difficult in conservative Christianity to figure out what's your place, you know? Yep. Like there's a scripture that says women should not teach men. Like you have to wrestle with that if you're yep. going to be a teacher in the church yep. and you're going to teach men or like right now I'm coaching men. I'm definitely mentoring and teaching men. So what do we do with that? Yeah. So we start with that journey where we're so committed to biblical Christianity and definitely entered into covenant relationship. We did not believe in divorce. So that was off the table from square one, mm-hmm. but then we had to, we had to navigate. How do we, how do we do this when we are so different and we process so differently? We think very differently. We have many shared values, but many values that are almost um, not congruent with each other. <laughs> like, yeah. You know, so this oscillation, right? Um, uh, I'm losing what word I want to say about that. But anyway, we're just traveling through life, sure. trying to come to this place where we're creating an exceptional marriage without losing our own identity, which I don't think you can have an exceptional marriage if it's codependent, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we do this without becoming codependent Mm -hmm. in the face of 10 pregnancies, in the face of some massive, um, like we we poured our hearts out into the church that we helped to plant. Uh, We served served very sacrificially, honestly. Uh, and then coming through what I would have called trauma from that situation and then having to recover and heal from that or not, or, I mean, we had the option to not heal. Right. Mm -hmm. But how do you find forgiveness? How do you find a sense of safety again? How do you proceed and trust people again, when you feel like you've been deeply betrayed? Um, so that's the journey. That's the context of the book. Um, I think one other layer is we we were got married early 80s and we came through Johnny passed away in 2021. Mm-hmm. So that in church history particularly we're coming right off the shepherding movement into the prophetic movement uh, all the way into now kind of a deconstructionist movement. So 
our life and our involvement in the church kind of spanned a lot of these different paradigms yeah. and having to wrestle through the the pros and the cons or the gifts and the right yeah if there's an ox in the stall he's gonna make a mess right, right? <laughs> so we have messes to deal with and yeah. and how do you see the underbelly and still find a place in your heart to be open-hearted and soft and tender with God and not bitter and resentful. Yeah. Yeah. So the relational piece is the bigger mm. piece of culture. And what well, I'll, I'll just sum it up by saying, mm. I'm telling a story. I'm not, I'm not telling people what to take away from this book, but as I'm telling the story, I'm, my prayer is that people will be able to like read between the lines, find themselves and from that reflection back on themselves, find an insight, an aha, an awareness, an encouragement, hope, find something that will deeply minister to them and make it worth their time and worth yeah. their investment. Yeah, no, that's really good because I've read a lot of memoirish type books where it's, you know, here's my story and here's what you should take away from it. And I felt in your story, it was like, here's my story. And it was almost like, come on in and join me in the journey and see where you find yourself between the lines, in the pages, things like that. And I found myself making connections to your story without you having to tell me what the connection was, if that makes sense. Hey, yeah. That was, hope. that was my hope from square one. Yeah, well, you did it. So deconstruction, talk to me about that a little bit because I'm wondering when did that, when did that word or when did that phase come into the, into the picture? Your husband passed away in 2021. We talked a little bit about church trauma, which we can talk about more in a moment. But when did that deconstruction come into the, the picture? Like what triggered that? So I would not have used that word originally. Mm -hmm. The word itself and the awareness of that that is like a movement is relatively new, probably even like maybe since my husband passed away, have yeah. I become aware of it as a movement. But when things kind of imploded in 2011, mm -hmm. And we left the church that we were in and we found ourselves sitting at home on Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. um, we had to deconstruct for ourselves. And I wouldn't have used that word. Mm -hmm. but it's exactly what we had to do. We had to deconstruct what is our relationship with church? What is our relationship with God? What is our re relationship with scripture? Yeah. And it took, it took at least five years for us to untangle. You mean that. it wasn't overnight? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> if only. <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So dug into lots of, we were very intentional about it because sure. that was such an anchor, a core value for us that mm -hmm. suddenly we felt um, like instead of a four-legged stool, we had a three-legged stool kind mm -hmm. of, and mm -hmm. I just pulled that out of thin air, but it was like wobbly. And it was like, well, what's the meaning of life even? Mm -hmm. And then we're flirting with depression and we're flirting with purposelessness and drifting. And we're, we have two teenage boys in our home that we are responsible to. And we don't want to just like, we don't want our lives to just fall apart in front of our kids. And they could have, yeah. like they could have. So we had to get very intentional with each other and with God and with our own heart to pull out the gold and throw away the rest. Yeah. It's funny when, when I started deconstructing, I wouldn't have called it that either. Cause I didn't have that word in my vocabulary yet. Right. 
but to your point, it, it's very disorient, a very disorienting feeling because I feel like, like you said, you have this four-legged stool all of your life where it's like certainty, you know, like I know there's certain things that are certain in the universe and the way that life works and the afterlife and all the pieces are in place, but then you pull out one of those legs and all of a sudden the whole thing begins to wobble and you're like, wait a minute, like this doesn't feel good at all. Like I remember for me, one of the first things to think about was like the afterlife and hell and different things like that. Heaven and hell was very easy. It's good people go here and the not so good go here. And that's the way it is. But then I started to rethink that, which then made me rethink about God and maybe rethink about Jesus and the cross and what's the purpose of the cross and like all these different things. And like it all just started to come down. And like you said, it's just very disorienting to have that feeling of, I'm not really certain about very much <laughs> anymore. <laughs> yeah. And adding to that, I would add, what do I do? Like for us, yeah. so much of our identity was wrapped up in what we did. Like yes. I'm a worship leader. You'd yeah. ask, what do you do? I'm a worship leader. Yeah. And you notice when you ask, what do you do? I said, well, it's more how I be. Like that is a fruit of that deconstruction period yeah. in our lives where yeah. we let go and lay down all the doing and came back to how do we want to orient to life? I love that answer because I grew up I went to Bible college and I went to seminary. I got my master's degree. I pastored a church for a while. And that was my identity. That's who I was. And when all of that was gone, when it was taken away and I decided to leave it, there was this sense of, I don't know who I am. <laughs> what, what am I doing in the world? You know, so it, I love the answer that you gave me about being as opposed to doing, because that's something I'm trying to emulate in my own life. It is not so much about the things I do whether it's the podcast or different social media things I do, but it's about who I, the, the kind of being that I am in my home, the kind of being that I am in my life. And out of who, and things I, out of my being come these things that I do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. It's very, very different positionality. It sounds, like, it sounds like well, that's not a big deal, but when you live into it, yeah. it's huge. And it's a mental shift, right? Because all of our lives were, we think one certain way, but when you start talking about this being versus doing, you really have to change, intentionally change your vocabulary in the way yeah. that you talk about these things. So it is, it is a mind bender <laughs> for sure. It is for sure. Yeah. So church trauma, can you talk to us about, or religious trauma, a little bit more about, about that? Because first of all, I think like deconstruction, religious trauma is kind of like a buzz phrase these days that I feel like people throw around fairly lightly. And it's not obviously a very light topic at all. So maybe a little bit about what that means to you. And then secondly, can you talk to us about maybe some of the specifics, however far you want to go into it regarding that trauma and the ways that it impacted your relationship with God, uh, particularly for, for the better? Awesome. So let's, instead of saying religious trauma, let's just mm -hmm. look at trauma itself. Sure. So that is a buzzword. And I, I'm really grateful that our culture has become aware of trauma and mm -hmm. we've begun to like be trauma informed in a way, even yeah. just lay people on the street. Mm -hmm. But trauma, it's not just, it's not just um, an experience that you have that is, there's a word I'm looking for, like distressing. Mm -hmm. It isn't just a distressing experience. Like we all have distressing experiences. But but from Jim Wilder's work and Chris Corsi and um, some of their body of work, I've drawn this definition of trauma and I've, I kind of made it my own, but it's like when the 
the event or the situation is so distressing that you can't be yourself in it. You lose mm-hmm. sight of who you are. Mm-hmm. That to me is kind of a working definition of trauma. And so when we talk about religious trauma, mm-hmm. we're just locating where that trauma happened. Mm-hmm. So that distressing event, situation, culture, whatever occurred in the context of my faith orientation in my faith community. Mm-hmm. That's that's fairly simple. Um, for a lot of people, <clears throat> of course, my community is Christian. So I think a lot of people are talking about religious trauma related to theology, because there is some theology that causes people to lose a sense of their self, mm-hmm. of their identity. Um, I did that a little bit because growing up, I I was impacted by God doesn't want to see me. He only wants to see Jesus. So mm-hmm. if he sees me, you know, I'm disgusting and yeah. I would go to hell. So the whole, what would Jesus do? Break, you know, yeah. the, what would Jesus do? It's like, well, it's not what, it's not what Kandana would do. It's what would Jesus do? Yeah. So I have to become less. He has to become more the famous verse from John the Baptist. Yeah. That is, can be slightly traumatic when you begin to experience toxic shame around that kind of doctrine or theology And I know there's a balance here and I'm not going to get into like how to reconcile uh, that. I'm just talking about, you know, sometimes people experience toxic shame, a sense of hopelessness, Mm -hmm. a sense of despair from theology alone. That has happened for us. It wasn't theology, Mm -hmm. particularly it was, we were in the culture coming off the heels of the prophetic movement. So we live in Kansas city area so the Kansas City Prophets was a big IHOP, <laughs> IHOP yep. right? All of that was just like a big deal. It was also in the season of you had the Toronto blessing going on for years. Yeah. We had Pensacola happen. John um, uh, John Wimber, he was involved in all John that. John Wimber, yeah. right? Yeah. 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 Todd Bentley, you know, yeah. in that whole timeline down in Florida. So we have this thing happening culturally where it really did feel like God was restoring the prophetic to the church with authority, like the office of prophet, if you want to say that. Mm -hmm. And so in our culture, we had given um, quite a bit of credibility to people who would say, I think God is saying this for you. And then we give a prophetic word. Now where it gets tricky and And in the midst of the movement, there was appropriate teaching Mm -hmm. about testing prophetic words and prophetic words should only confirm what's inside of you. And so there were there were boundaries and riverbanks for it to flow within the movement. Mm -hmm. They were there. But as people, as human beings, we don't always like. Like sink into that as a way of being. Sure. For instance, so our way of being with the prophetic was like, tell me what God's saying for me. So we're outsourcing to a degree and we're we're like giving prophetic people and prophetic voices a credibility that is really not legitimate. Mm-hmm. Like maybe there is a level of credibility, but we should not give away our own, the own credibility for our own ability to hear God and walk with God. So you end up, what happened for us was over, it built over time. Mm -hmm. 
but that relationship with the prophetic word was such that a word came to our congregation and basically um we disagreed with it we didn't mm -hmm. think it was from god we thought it was really truly a false prophetic word and it was very directional for our congregation johnny was in leadership and the word and i was in leadership i was the worship leader mm -hmm. And the word had a directive for us to step away and step to leave, basically to leave the church. Mm. So that like, when I say that out loud from the outside looking in, like yeah. who could tell you to leave the church? That's right. so bizarre. Right. I, and I, I know I get it from the outside is so bizarre. And yet we were in the middle of that and we had to wrestle with like, do mm -hmm. you have authority to tell us to leave the church? And do you have authority to tell the church to like the Titanic go a different direction? Mm -hmm. And who gets to decide that? Mm -hmm. And that was the place where we experienced the trauma because it it's basically split the leadership of the church. Mm -hmm. And so my husband and I, he resigned and another elder resigned with him and we we didn't have an option so what good came from that and much good came from that from my perspective and i can i can speak on two levels the first level is for me and my husband personally i realized i was outsourcing my sense of legitimacy i wanted the men in the church the specifically the leaders the alpha males if you would to tell me that I was legitimate and to give me permission to let my essence kind of shine. Yeah. So I was totally outsourcing that. Mm. I was, I was coming kind of like a victim into the church, mm. a victim to male domination or whatever. And that's saying it too extreme, but pulling on that thread and un unraveling that for me, now I can, I can do what I'm called to do. I could not have done this then, even though I was leading worship and I felt like I was living into my purpose and I was in a limited way, but the cap was on, it, it, it was shut down because I was outsourcing so much. Yeah. Um, also from that, I began to really understand what I call the drama wheel. Uh, you could Google drama triangle, um, I think Danny Silk talks about it as triangulation and um, keep your love on um, different. Um, it's it's a it's a concept that's out there. It's not original with me, mm -hmm. but through that situation, I learned about drama and I learned where I was in victim, hero, and villain, and how to get out of it and how to like own my own empowerment and own my own relationship with God with and nobody else needs to validate that yeah. i don't have anything to prove i don't have anything to defend i just sit with that for a minute like for all of those years i've been proving and defending what a good christian i was yeah. and now i don't have anything to prove or defend yeah. it's a huge shift so and i will say on another level after mm -hmm. the books come out i've been in dialogue with those other leaders and there is some reconciliation happening which is mm -hmm incredibly powerful so just as a parenthetical note i think that's another good that's coming from it not just like there's an example in the earth of something so split 
coming back to reconciliation and healing, I think is super powerful in the yeah. earth for that just to exist. Sure. So. Sure. Yeah. And that's what I, you know, just hearing you talk about this part of your story, this is one of the parts that shined a lot of light onto my own story as I was reading your book and now especially listening to you kind of tell the story to me is obviously we come from different worlds, but I grew up in um, the Christian Missionary Alliance world. So it's very, um, it's evangelical. It's very, can be very charismatic. Uh, we we had a class on divine healing where we read John Wimber's books, you know, so we, we, I kind of moved and I ran, I ran with those, with those packs, I guess you could say, you right. know, we, we did all those different things. And in, in my world, you know, there, especially in school, there were those alpha males that controlled things, you know, and, and they, they had good hearts, you know, they, they were certainly great, great people, but I wanted to so desperately be part of that group. You know, there was like that in group that revolved around these different alpha males. I can think of like two in particular, and I really wanted to be part of that, that group. And I so longed for the approval yes. of those individuals, because I felt like if I could get their approval, that's going to really validate me and who I am and what I'm doing and you know, going in the right direction, all these different things. And, but there was a sense where when trying to achieve that, I could never really be like myself, if that makes sense, because I felt right. like, especially in terms of like theology and thinking about God, like I've always had these far out thoughts about God, but I was always afraid to share them because they've got to fit you. You have to, if you want to be in that group, you've got to operate in this lane and you have to stay right. within these boundaries. And if you go outside of those boundaries, you're not going to be able to make it into that group. So I always felt like I got to keep that stuff in. I got to, I got to hone it in and I got to, I got to be the the yes man. I've got to say the right answers. I can do the right things to get in that group. But now that I'm out of that world and I'm doing my own thing and I'm exploring all these different things, having all these different people on the show to talk about all this different stuff, I feel like I could finally be myself. And there's just a sense of freedom that I have now that I never, ever, ever would have been able to have had I stayed in that world doing that thing. And so when I hear you sharing your story, I'm saying yes, because I feel like that's ringing so true in my life right now. And I know for many of our listeners, they're in the same boat because they have that feeling where I don't know if I'm going in the right direction because I'm leaving all this stuff behind. A lot of people are mad at me <laughs> because I'm, you know, right. going against the grain, but yet at the same time, I feel so whole and so complete. And so I really want our listeners to hear that. Yes, you're going in the right direction. Uh, keep, keep moving away from that and keep focusing on your being and who you're being yes. in the world, as opposed to what you're doing to stay in that inner circle. So beautiful. So beautiful. Yeah. And, and I can imagine there was attached to some of that, like trying to fit in and knowing that you don't fit in, which parenthetically, none of us really fit in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you think everybody else fits in and right. we're out when really nobody fits. That's right. But we think that I don't fit. So something's wrong with me. Yes. So there tends to be a little bit of shame attached to being different and not agreeing. And so, because we're ashamed of it, that even makes us hide it more and push it down more. And like, what's wrong with me? And yep. it's just gnarly. Yeah. And, yeah. I'm thinking, yeah. I have so many things I could say. I have so many. I feel like there's so many directions we could go in. <laughs> right. I've told, I've told this story before. I'm going to share it with you, though, because I feel like you'll have some good insight. But 
one of the things I experienced in class in school is we took a lot of these classes where we did deliverance. So a deliverance some from demons and things like that. And all my life, like I've struggled with, I've always been more of the quiet type, like more introverted and more like to myself, not really that big vocal outgoing leader. You know, when you're in school and seminary, going to be a pastor, you're surrounded by a lot of those very big personalities who can just get on stage, captivate a crowd, do all the things. I can force myself into that, but it's just not really what I like to do. And I don't feel comfortable with it. And so I always struggled with like feeling not good enough. I've always struggled with feeling like, um, like shame and th things like that, because like, I'm not like that. So there must be something wrong with me. And so I've always bring this up, like all throughout college seminary. And so many times I was told that, well, that's, that's a demon of self-condemnation and we have to cast that out, you know? So there was so many times where I went through these deliverance sessions where typically people are pretty calm. They're just like praying for you and speaking to this demon. And sometimes they would get kind of loud, but just over and over again, trying to cast this out, like, go, go away in the name of Jesus, you know, go to hell in the name of Jesus, do all these different things. And for a while, it would always get better. I'd always feel like, oh, I feel lighter. I feel better, whatever. But then like, you know, six months later, it would come creeping back in again. And I'd feel that heaviness again. And I feel like that quietness. I feel like I don't feel like I fit in. And so then it was, well, you must be doing something wrong. Now you must not be reading your Bible enough or going to church enough. So now there's more shame <laughs> that seeped on top of and doing the solutions, do it different. Yeah. So there's just more shame kind of getting layered on top. But then recently, like maybe a year ago, my friend Alexander Shia was on the show and I was talking to him off, off the recording about this very issue. And he said, what if that's not what if that's not a demon? Something needs to cast away. What if that's like a younger version of yourself? What if that's your inner child, so to speak? What if that child is kind of parroting back to you different things that he's heard throughout his life? And what if instead of trying to cast him out, because that's what's always been done to him, he's been cast away, locked up and told to shut up. What if you invite him to your table instead and befriend him and ask him questions about why do you feel quiet? Why don't you want to be more upfront or why don't you and try to get to know that part of yourself and make friends with it because that part of yourself is actually can be something that can empower you uh, yeah. in your life and in your sense of being in the world. So yeah. I've been trying to do that over the last year and it's been a remarkable difference. Like instead of shaming myself for being yeah. more introverted and quiet, I've been saying that's fine that you're introverted and quiet. Let's use that as our superpower. Let's do something with it. And I feel like that's just transformed the whole way that I'm able to be in the world doing the things that I do in my yes. life. So so powerful, Glenn. That that's actually a description of what I do with my clients. Mm. Not the only thing I do with my clients, but part one of the one of my programs is a five pillars of relational excellence. Mm -hmm. The second pillar is coming home to your aligned heart. Talk about kids that you've locked in the closet because mm. you were ashamed. Yep. They yep. couldn't be present or you would get rejected. You wouldn't be approved of so you just yeah. lock parts of yourself away like i can't show up like that yeah. can't show up like that and inviting them back in so that you can have an integrated sense of identity and wholeness and yeah and that essence line that's how you're created yep that's right thank you so yeah. we talk about we want to 
fulfill our calling. We want to be everything that God called us to be. Mm-hmm. And without all those kids that we've locked in closets, we can't be all that God's called us to be. That's, That's part right. of our equipment. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's so good. It's part of our, our experiences have to be honored, right? Because those are part of our, those different kids that we've locked up are different seasons of our life, different, the whole different experiences that we've had that whether we like it or not have helped make us who we are today. Exactly. We, we can learn from those parts of ourselves as opposed to shaming them and casting yes. them out. Yeah. Yes. All right. So a question I want to ask you is about, is about parenting. Cause I feel like you, you are the, uh, <laughs> you are like the wizard <laughs> parent to give nine kids and uh, you're still mentally sane. So clearly you are, you are the expert. But my, my question is uh, something that a lot of people have asked me and I don't have an answer because I'm trying to figure it out myself, but what have you learned about maintaining your sense of purpose in the world as you parent and, and raise your kids and even homeschool all of your kids? And I ask that because in my own life, we have one child and she's, she's five. And uh, honestly, even with one, sometimes I feel like it's, it's really hard to focus on my dreams and, and my goals and continuing to find my place in the world. Cause at 41, I'm still trying to figure, figure it out, but at the same time, be a fully present parent at home. And sometimes to be uh, really vulnerable with you, I feel like really guilty when I take time to sit down and do things for myself, like whether it's work on my podcast or uh, work on a book that I'm writing or whatever creative thing I might be working on in the moment, instead of spending time with my daughter or pouring all of my attention to her because she's five, as you know, the time goes so quickly. And before you know it, you blink and you know they're in a whole nother season of their life. And so I feel like that's a common thing that I hear from a lot of people who are content creators like myself. They work from home. They have small children. There's a sense of like, how do I juggle all the things? How do I be an effective stay-at-home parent and not lose sight of my own dreams and my own things that I'm doing in the world? And so I thought that you would have a good answer to share with us about maybe what you have learned uh, with all those different things going on in your life with all of your kids? <laughs> I don't know if I have a good answer, but I do have an answer. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> I have thoughts. I have some ideas and yes. some things that I've learned. What's coming up for me, the first thing I think of is when you talk about, like, how do I like keep a focus on my dreams and yeah. my goals and aspirations and I parent? Mm-hmm. And the first question I would ask is just around that challenge of, like being a parent is a purpose in life. Yeah. It's not like, I actually thought I had turned this off. I'm so sorry. That's okay. It's off. That's fine. Um, That you have an idea of like, this is what I'm supposed to do in the world. And parenting is my side hustle. Yeah. I would challenge that. Yeah. I would say this is your side hustle and parenting is at least for the time that your children are from birth until 14, 16, maybe 18 or 20, depending on the kid. This is your reason for being in a sense. Now that's not to say that this doesn't exist because it does. Yeah. But changing your, your values to actually say, okay, parenting is primary. This is my primary, um, outlet expression the primary place where i get to show up in life Mm. is very different than feeling like it's a side hustle yeah so that's a way of being Mm -hmm. and the other thing that i would 
that I think helped me more than anything that I, if I had 30 minutes and I could sit down with anybody and say, how can I change your life in 30 minutes? I would talk to you about the drama triangle. I call it the drama wheel Mm -hmm. because in the drama wheel, we're in this place of victim. Like I'm a victim to my kids demands upon me, or you're in the place of hero. Like I feel guilty when I don't do all of this with my kids. So I feel like I have to hero them. It's not a win for me to do this, but I'm going to do it because so that's hero energy. And then you begin to resent your child because you're heroing them and you're giving them more than is really being mm-hmm. appropriately asked for from your own heart. And so you resent it. And so you're just doing this dance between feeling like a victim, need to hero, resentment and villain energy. And then your kids are also getting drama with you, especially as they get older, like you know, teenagers for sure, preteens, they reflect that drama right back to you really <laughs> fast. Yeah, right? Right. So then you have a home that's chaotic because mm-hmm. everybody's fighting to who gets to be the victim. Yeah. So understanding the drama and getting out of that drama. So mm-hmm. so let's take you working in your child. Mm-hmm. You had a incredibly beautiful post about a morning with your daughter. Yeah. So amazing. Mm. Now, you don't turn that into a formula for like, here's the five steps to be present with your daughter. So every morning we have to do the coffee. We have to play the dolls. We have like, no, Yeah, it's a way of being. Yeah, You allowed yourself to be with her in the midst of what you were doing. You invited her to come in. She invited you to come into her play and you did this dance together. Yeah. And you still got something done. And when her cup is full, you can say, you need to play. You need to do whatever you do without me because I'm doing this. Mm -hmm. And then she gets to see this demonstration of a man living into the fullness of his potential and purpose and fighting for that within the banks that are appropriate. So you're giving her appropriate attention. Mm. And when you're present with her, you're present. Yeah, And you're pulling away appropriately. And she's witnessing that. And she's yeah. learning a way of being of how to honor herself and her boundaries. Yeah. So, and for me, all of that came from understanding drama. That's that understanding drama is kind of the core of the work that I do. It's, it's the, it's not all that I do by any mm-hmm. means, but it's probably the nugget at the center that like, if I teach one thing to everybody, it would be that. Yeah. So I unpack it in my Facebook group and I'm working on a book. I'm teaching a couple classes right now. I call it dump the drama. Is nice. my... <laughs> so, but unpacking, that's what it looks like when you're outside yeah. of drama, you're a problem solver, you're vulnerable, you're caring, but you respect boundaries. Yeah. You speak the truth in love empathetically. Yeah. Like it's such a powerful place to live. And yeah. I think that living there has enabled me to while homeschooling create the content do the coaching like i've been able to create appropriate boundaries and set appropriate expectations mm-hmm. for myself and with my children and it's worked for us yeah. yeah i feel like that's why i feel like i'm slowly shifting into that kind of mindset because i feel like when i started working from home well, i've been working from home for the last like year and a half i guess and so our, this is still very new for us, I guess you could say. And so still trying to figure out what it's like. But 
at first it was like I had all these different compartments. You know, like I have my my dad compartments, I have my work compartments, and I have this compartment and things like that. And so I was trying to keep everything separate. And then I felt like the dam was breaking, so to speak, and the boxes were kind of coming apart. And I felt like very overwhelmed because I feel like I'm being tugged in a million directions. Yes. And I don't know what to do. And I feel guilty because this little one re- relies on me. And so I have to give her my attention. But then all these other things aren't getting my attention. Like, what am I going to do? Like having this major anxiety attack inside. But now I'm starting to realize kind of what you said about being is instead of looking at different compartments, there's one compartment and it's just me. It's it's my life. And in that compartment, there's many different aspects of myself. But I'm learning I can invite Jordan, my daughter, into those different places with me. So like when I have to work on my podcast sometimes during the day and she's home, I invite her into the office and she'll sit here with her little notepad and her little journal and she'll doodle and draw while I do whatever I got to do on the computer. And we're talking while I'm doing it, you know, so we're talking about the day, we're talking about what we want to do when we're done, things like that. We call it office time. And she looks forward to that. And uh, sometimes she'll sit over there with her iPad and do some different things while I'm on my computer doing some things. And so try to learn to invite her into that as opposed to feeling like there has to be this cutoff time of daddy time to work time. And so just all kind of one. And sometimes it feels overwhelming because I'm still trying to figure it out. But I feel like I'm moving based on what you just shared with me. I feel like I'm moving in a much better direction or maybe maybe a more complete direction as opposed to the way that I was going before. Definitely more sustainable. Yes, that's the word I was looking for, a sustainable (laughs) direction. (laughs) So Johnny worked from home for many years and it was he had he worked mostly he was on calls or on Mm -hmm. the computer. So as those last few years of his life, I'm doing content creation. So this this Mm -hmm. is kind of we were we had an exceptional marriage at that point. Mm-hmm. So I I'm doing content creation and I'm maybe I hit that wall where I just like I can't quite get it out and I know it's there and I'm trying to birth it and mm-hmm. I'm feeling frustrated and Johnny's super grounded energy, super grounded energy. And he he kind of gets me. So he'd be on the call, he has a headset, right? Mm-hmm. I could slip into his office. And he'd just open up his arm and I'd come lay my head on his shoulder and he'd put his arm around me and he'd just mm-hmm. keep on going with the call. He, we, we wouldn't talk at all, but I could tap into this grounded energy and into this, this other person who believed in what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And I could just kind of absorb that and he mm-hmm. would absorb some of my chaos, right? Mm-hmm. He's still doing his call. Mm-hmm. And then I just leave a couple minutes, you know, or he'd have a break between calls. He'd come out. The kids would be playing or whatever. He would maybe they're watching something on TV. He would sit down and watch for five, 10 minutes with them and just exchange a little bit, ruffle their hair. You know, it was just it worked very, very well yeah. for us for him yeah. to work from home yeah. and for him to kind of move in and out of our lives through the day. Sometimes he'd be in the office and if he had to, he'd close the door. Yeah. But um, it just worked really well. And I'm kind of emulating that now where I'm working, but I come out to my kids and I try to take work out there when I can. And we just kind of flow. Sure. Sure. That's really helpful. I'm going to, I'm going to chew on that. I feel like I have a, I feel like this is like a counseling session for me. (laughs) I feel like my my (laughs) mind is now in a different, in a much different direction, but Hey, we're just about out of time uh, for the recording, but uh, this has been a lot of fun. I do have more questions for you. So maybe we can do this again 
Sometime. I would love we could, to. We could do a part two. I think it would be a lot of fun. It would be awesome. I'd love that. Awesome. Thank you. And before you go, uh, where can people find you online to interact with you and your work? Any websites or social media places you want to send us to? So everything's Kendana K. So okay. Kendana K dot com is a website. I'm Kendana K on all the social media. Mm -hmm. And the book is Kendana K. So my last name is Heston. Mm -hmm. So there's Heston in there too. But if you just Google Kendana K, you'll find me. Awesome. I'll put your links in the show notes and I'll be in touch to do it again. Thanks so much, Glenn. Have a great Thank day. You. you too.